Welcome to another of the shorter Food Street podcasts, which Jonathan and I have been doing since March now. And today I am uh, delighted to be able to talk to award-winning biographer and critic and journalist uh, Julie Phillips. Uh, how are things in Amsterdam these days, Julie? Um, things are okay. All the Americans abroad are worried about the election, and um, we're in be. the middle. <laughs> we're in the middle of the second coronavirus, so that's a little stressful, but it could be worse. We, we didn't, Amsterdam didn't get hit very hard the first time around, mm. so, you know. Well, we're we doing took, the, I'm sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I was, I was no. just going to say, I was going to get into the question of reading, but go ahead and finish your thought. Oh, that's okay. I was, uh, um, about reading one of the ways that, you know, the pandemic affected my reading is that there was no traffic in Amsterdam for about two months, and I was riding my bike and listening to books because I could listen with earphones without having to worry about paying attention. And um, that really changed my habits, just being able to get out all the time. And you have no, you have no difficulty listening to books. I, I've, I've tried it, and I, I find myself looking at birds and flowers and things in nature and losing track of the book. And this is not a problem for you. No, sometimes I can't listen to something, you know, deeply complex and philosophical. Uh But um, one of the things that really got me through the pandemic for some reason was uh, listening to uh, the Murderbot Diaries, partly because they're really, really well read in the audio versions. And just because I think I was annoyed and wanted, you know, somebody to go out and beat up Uh on things for a bit. Yeah, I can understand that entirely. <laughs> this kind of impersonal attack on injustice and also this kind of wondering about, you know, who am I and what am I doing here and how did this all happen just really it seemed to fit the mood of the moment. Several people have mentioned Martha Wells because I think part of what you're talking about, it, there, there's a sense of alienation, but at the same time they are, there, there's a sense of, I don't know, resolution, I guess. Several people have mentioned murder mysteries simply because there's a solution at the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're one of the problems with listening to books is that you get impatient and want to be able to skip ahead and find out what happens. So sometimes right. I had to read the um, I had to read the book alongside the audio book. You know, now I have to know the, you know this is right. going too slowly for me. I need to know now how this <laughs> resolves. Do you and, have any comfort uh, things that you just return to as comfort reading? Oh. Yeah, what did I? I didn't have so much comfort reading for the pandemic somehow or another. Although my um, I write, uh, I do book reviews for one of the Dutch daily papers, uh-huh. and they decided to do um, a weekly feature in the run up to the election um, on uh, great American novels and asked oh, me really? to uh, write about several uh, great American novels, and that's been really fun. Sort of in the context of you know, what's going on in America right now. So, well, who, um, who decides what the great American novels are? You you or the newspaper? <laughs> well, um, my editor did. She, had, you know, sort of in consultation, me and uh-huh. several other people, and do you think this should be in? Do you think that should be in? Um, certain books happen to have recent Dutch editions, like uh-huh. for some reason East of Eden just got a new translation, so that went straight in there, just because it's available, uh-huh. and um, 
I pitched uh, O Pioneers because I'm kind of a Willie Cather fan, and it, that turned out to be have a translation uh, in progress for some reason. Oh, yeah. And so I wrote about uh, Huckleberry Finn. I mean, that had and um, O Pioneers, and I just wrote about uh, Beloved. And I'm going to do Underground Railroad later on. The um, and, oh, the, the Whitehead, the, the new one. Yeah. Okay, because all the others you mentioned were much older than. Uh, well, yeah, we're co- we're trying to cover. Okay, great. Right. Well, one of the questions I'm sure one of the questions you get all the time when you're talking either about <clears throat> about uh, Alice Sheldon or about Le Guin is do you do you do you look at other biographies or have you looked at other biographies uh, as models of either what to do or what to avoid? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's see. What are uh, literary what biographies I... strike me as being especially difficult since you're especially. You're describing someone's interior life. I mean, I suppose you're right if uh, uh, if you're a Hemingway or or even a Steinbeck, and you have a colorful life. That's one thing. Uh, but to to use our current example, Ursula Le Guin didn't have an adventurous life, as far as I can tell. No, and yet, in my view, went through a really interesting development as a writer and. Mm. As a person, you know, came from an unusual place, uh, came from an unusual background, which I think appealing and fascinating to a lot of people. Um, I've just been in uh, correspondence with uh, Ursula's son Theo about the um, family house in uh, the Napa Valley, which which is uh, up for sale now, I gather. No, no, that was oh, it was her house, uh, the house she grew up in in Berkeley. Oh, the That's Berkeley right. house is up for sale, but not the Napa Valley house. That- the I, Napa I Valley house is in the middle of the glass fire right now. So oh, they dear. Are, um, yeah, they had a really bad scare a few years ago, and uh, now again. And for now, they're, they think it's going to be okay. It's just the fire could go in any direction. Right. I, well, it's, it's hitting some vineyards now already, I guess. Yeah. I, I wonder, um, to get on, well, we're, we're really, uh, unless you have other books you want to talk about, we're already into the part of it where I ask you what you're doing, and I know now that you've been writing about the great American novel. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious, and everybody wants to know about uh, about the progress on Le Guin, but I, you've also been working on a book about mothering uh, that has uh, a chapter on it, I, a chapter on Doris Lessing, I gather, which fascinates me because uh, I, having met Doris's son, Peter, a couple of times and had conversations, not deep ones, uh, I'm just wondering... What her attitude as a mother and a writer seemed to be publicly, because what I'm getting at, she said to me one time that she was a terrible mother. She felt bad about being a terrible mother, but she didn't feel too bad about it because she thought her work was really important. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think she had a kind of a funny attitude about all the guilt that she felt as a mother. She kept a kept a lot of it to herself and then would sort of casually do it and really piss people off that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I think that, I think that her, the guilt that she felt was real, um, you know, particularly since she left her first marriage right. and in so doing left her first two kids. And she didn't surpri- talk surprisingly little about uh, the roots of that, I found some interesting letters that she wrote at the time where she was actually saying, you know, 
I left my husband. I was hoping he'd let me see the kids, but I had no legal rights to see the kids, and mm. he refused. He refuses to let me see them. Sometimes, if I like, you know, go and see him and beg and plead for a couple hours, then he'll let me have a weekend with the kids. And so you could see her actually really making an effort right. to spend time with her kids and being constantly rebuffed. So what? she was. And it's interesting that she doesn't really talk about that in her memoirs, maybe because of it that she didn't know. Yeah, that, that could well be. I mean, what the conversation I had with her was mostly about her relationship with Peter, who she did have with her when she left Rhodesia. Yeah. He was, I think he was born in Rhodesia and was two or three years old or something when she moved back to Exactly. But uh, it, was, it was an interesting relationship to watch, and I just wondered if, uh, if there was any document. He died only a few weeks just before Just a few weeks. Did. Yeah, I know. And he was not, yeah. didn't seem to be in bad health. Uh, I had not seen him for a couple of years then. Yeah, he was diabetic, apparently. He was also, apparently, schizophrenic, um, which I don't know if that came across when you there met was a, him. There was a distinct neuroatypical affect, if that's a way of putting it. Yeah. Um, I think she may have felt a lot of guilt about that. Particularly yeah. since he would have been diagnosed in the '60s, which is still a time of kind of intense right. mother blame. Yeah, and I think that he, there's a good chance he might have been on medication, but nevertheless, he was uh, oddly non-deferential toward her. He, he called her Doris. He never acted as though she was his mother at all. Uh, uh-huh. And see, and he, I get his apartment was adjacent to her house, I, mm-hmm. uh, but it was uh, it was it was an odd couple kind of relationship where he was. Uh, the sense I got almost unwilling to accept the degree of her fame. Uh-huh. She was never care- concerned about the degree of her fame either. So it was a, an accommodation it looked like. It didn't look uncomfortable at all to me, but it just looked um, strained, I guess. Yeah. But we and should talk a little bit. I'm sorry, finish that thought. Now, um, and, and yet, you know, here they are kind of, you know, stuck with each other for life. Yeah. You know, apparently he couldn't, she felt he couldn't live on his own, and somehow she was getting comfort, I guess, maybe of some kind. I read one, a Dutch interview with her, they said, and her son Peter just came in with an armload of science fiction books for her from the library. (laughs) Which is the other thing that I, uh, the reason I met her was she was a guest at our international conference on the fantastic. Uh, Thanks to Brian Alderson, and... uh, then the first time I visited her, I realized she she was asking me why why doesn't every science fiction writer write like Greg Bear? She said, um, which just stunned me. I had no idea. I knew she knew Brian Aldiss and Arthur Clarke and Olaf Stapledon and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. and I later told Greg that, and he wanted he, he just said have put it on my books, uh, which would be a reasonable reaction. But tell us mm-hmm. if the title is the same as you had going on. This book has a terrific title. Are you sticking with that one? Um, I'm still calling it the baby on the fire escape in the working draft. I just, I turned the whole thing or almost the whole thing in this summer and my uh-huh. editor's reading it now and I'm just about to, um, sort of tackle some bits that still need doing and I'm waiting for her revision. So I'm going to have a long talk with her about it. I don't, you, if you like it, I mean, maybe. I, I like it. I think it's a terrific title. Um. Yeah. It comes from a story about, um, the painter Alice Neal that she was, um, supposedly um, put her baby in the bassinet out on the fire escape so she could concentrate long enough to finish it. <laughs> there was a story about somebody who supposedly wrote inside the baby's crib to keep 
away from the baby? Who was? Oh, that's uh, Carol Imschwiller. That Carol um, Imschwiller, yeah. Yeah, I think that it was not. She's supposed to have um, written in the playpen to keep the kids out. But apparently, right. I think Eileen Gunn told me that that wasn't quite the case, but that she did um, keep a lot of papers in the playpen to keep the kids from messing with them. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating subject. And who are some of the other top subjects you're dealing with besides Lessing? And, uh, well, I think partly based on my literary taste. So I'm doing mm-hmm. Angela Carter. Oh, um, And um, whose uh, first husband, uh, interestingly, wouldn't talk to um, either her, the person who became her biographer, or me. We both, uh, I think, approached him and got the door slammed in our faces, mm-hmm. uh, um, metaphorically or, you know, digitally speaking. So he was, she left him, and I don't think he ever forgave her for it. Um, but, um, you know, she didn't have a kid until she was 43. Actually, so I, didn't she, realize until, yeah, I didn't realize until this moment that she had kid, a kid. Yeah. yeah, she had a son um, and was very happy as a mother, I think, partly because she'd kind of been through feminism and come out the other side and knew what she was doing. Yeah. So she wasn't um, in the situation of having kids really young and then having to figure out how to combine that with writing kind of from scratch. And I think well, Ursula had, a, you know, that motherhood was a really happy experience for her. I think, you know, as long as you have enough support, financial, emotional, you know, uh-huh. help with the kids and um enough time to do your writing that you know i first i first started this book as um my first idea for this book was uh i want to write about mothers who left their children in order to write mm-hmm. but then it turns out that they didn't mostly or if they did it was they had no choice yeah well with the Gwen herself uh, and the sense i got from uh from that documentary film uh was that she and she had a Apparently a fairly satisfactory family life. She and Charles seem to get along wonderfully. I never met Charles, unfortunately. But is that is that impression that you get from the film pretty accurate? I think so, as far as I can tell. I mean, she would say, oh, yeah, we had our arguments. But, um, you know, it seemed to be a really supportive marriage for both of them. Mm-hmm. And Charles is still around. I, I guess He's I a did. lovely, lovely guy. Right. Yeah, I was supposed to meet him on. Well, this is. Uh, the one time she sounded, I think, a little bit peeved. She, she she was supposed to have dinner with me here in Chicago. I think a, a book, what they now call Book Expo and then called the ABA. Uh-huh. And he was in Chicago and he could hear the Chicago Symphony. So he got tickets and he really wanted to go. And I got the impression she would rather have had dinner than go to the symphony. But she was clearly uh, delighted that he found something he wanted to do in Chicago at a literary <laughs> So she loyally went to the symphony. And she loyally went to the symphony. And I can't blame him. This is when uh, Schulte was still... Anyway, uh, we should probably get toward the end of this. The uh, Le Guin biography is uh, coming along nicely, I gather. You've been uh, giving talks about it. Uh, You've been uh, very uh, tantalizing, I guess, as to what we can expect. Yeah, I I did a whole bunch of research for it, um, archival research in... February, just before the lockdown, I had a chance uh-huh. to go to Portland and um, feel very lucky about that because I was uh, able to kind of take a look at some of her unpublished early, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hopefully at some point I'll be able to really sit down and go through that. It'll, well, there's a lot that we're going to be learning from the book, so it's something uh, I think everyone's looking forward to. But 
we're over our time as I thought we would be. <laughs> so anyway, uh, this is this is Gary Wolf from the Coop Street Podcast. I've been talking with uh, Julie Phillips. We're all awaiting the major biography of Ursula Le Guin, but no pressure. Uh, and thanks for being with us, Julie. My pleasure. Thank you.